All right, good morning. Let's study God's Word. Let's open in our Bibles to Acts chapter 22. As Jacob mentioned this morning, that's our text, Acts 22, verses 1 through 23. The topic, Paul delivered a sermon on the stairs to the mob that nearly beat him to death. The title of our message this morning, He Takes a Licking and Keeps on Talking. Acts 22, beginning in verse 1. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness and all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. Since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles." And they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out, they tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air. Let's pray together. Father, how glorious it is, how wonderful it is just to have the Bible and to be able to read through it. And Lord, when we're here in this setting uh, where you are present, uh, you've already begun to teach us, Lord, as uh, we've seen things as, as, as we're just reading through. You're talking to us about your love for us, your grace in our lives, your great mercy. And I pray that you'd continue to do that through the teaching, but mostly by your Holy Spirit, and that we would be refreshed, encouraged, and blessed having come here, Lord, to meet with you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. You've probably been asked to submit a resume 
at some point in your life. A prospective employer wants to know if you have the required education and experience for the job. For your part, you want to present yourself as the perfect person for the position that's being offered. The Apostle Paul's Sermon on the Stairs reads in part like a resume. He established his credentials as the perfect candidate for the job of reaching the Jews in Jerusalem with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said of himself to the Lord in verse 19, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Paul thought the Jerusalem Jews would see the radical transformation of his life and be drawn to Jesus Christ. But instead of hiring Paul to his dream job, the Lord said to him, verse 18 and 21, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Depart, I am sending you far from here to the Gentiles. Paul seemed the perfect man for the job of reaching the Jerusalem Jews. God instead sent him out among the Gentiles. Serving the Lord cannot be approached as if it were a job. God isn't in need of your education and experience, and most of us would say amen to that. He often passes over the more qualified candidates in favor of one who seems totally unexpected. He does it to bring glory to himself. I'm gonna organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, let God determine your work for him. And number two, let God direct your work for him. First of all, in verses one through 16, let God determine your work for him. Paul had just been beaten nearly to death by a hostile mob in the court of the Gentiles, which was just outside the temple area where Jews were allowed. 200 armed Roman soldiers had come to his aid. While carrying him up the stairway to the fortress of Antonia and safety, Paul asked if he could address his attackers. In a moment filled with spiritual authority, Paul motioned with his hand and the crowd was silenced. He seized the opportunity to give his testimony in the hope that the Jews would finally see the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ to transform a life. And so in verse 1, he says, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, and they kept all the more silent. Now, we sometimes say of a person, he's speaking my language. We use it not so much of a real language, but to describe the fact that the person seems to understand us and is making a connection with us, talking in ways that we understand. We, as Christians, want to connect with people. We want to speak their language in that sense. The longer you are a Christian, however, the harder that can become. We start speaking Christian and use words non-believers cannot possibly understand. In many cases, we withdraw from non-believers and spend most of our time with believers. And so we have to make an effort to connect with people, but it's a good effort, and I would encourage you to go on doing it. Now, the backstory to Paul's being seized and beaten was the rumor he was teaching Jews outside of Jerusalem to despise the law of Moses and the temple. He was seen as being too friendly with Gentiles and was falsely charged with bringing a Gentile into the forbidden area of the temple. 
To use modern language, Paul was accused of being too liberal. You hear this in the campaign all the time. And, and this is similar, but from a religious point of view, Paul was seen as a liberal Jew. He presented his conservative credentials in verses 3 through 5. He said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. As also the high priest bears me witness and all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul pointed out that though born outside of Jerusalem in more liberal Tarshish among Gentiles, he was brought up in Jerusalem as a conservative Orthodox Jew. He was taught by the revered Rabbi Gamaliel and he strictly kept the law of Moses. In fact, Paul was far more zealous than anyone in that crowd. It was he who persecuted Christians, not they. None of them bound and killed Christians. None of them could claim to have received letters from the high priest. None of them had pursued Christians all the way to Damascus. We see here that they called the Jewish Christians the way. The word itself refers to a road travelers take to arrive at their destination. Paul is using it as a play on words because on his way to Damascus, Paul found the way to heaven and to God. In verse 6, now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, which was his Jewish name, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. Jesus of Nazareth was the name our Lord chose to reveal himself to Paul. He meant to let Paul know that the man crucified on the cross at Calvary was God and he had risen from the dead. Luke records the conversion of Paul three separate times in the book of Acts. The first was in chapter 9. Here he recounts it for a Hebrew audience. In chapter 26, he will recount it for a Gentile audience. And that's why each time it is slightly different, though never contradictory, it depends upon his listeners. You can't have a canned presentation of the gospel or of your testimony. I know it's, it's popular and I... I guess I'm not really criticizing that. You know, a lot of people say you should you know, get, be able to give your testimony in less than three minutes and you should have it all kind of memorized and stuff like that. And I can understand that if you're always talking to the same people or the same kind of people. But Paul had this profound testimony and he tailored it towards his audience. If he was talking to a Hebrew audience, we'll see that he made it very Jewish. He used terminology that the Jews would recognize. When he gave it before uh, Roman rulers in the Gentile world, he abandoned some of the Jewish imagery in favor of language they would understand. And so, you know, I don't know that you have to practice your testimony because it's yours. You were there. 
It's not something that you have to, you know, really, uh, you know, memorize. You just, you got saved. And, and, you know, if you got saved later in life. And, and let God kind of direct you into who you're talking to. What kind of a group, what, what ethnicity, what, what's their background, who are these people, who is this person, and the Lord will guide and direct you in, uh, in a way that makes the most sense because we do want to make a connection. And, and uh, you know, it's true, you know, we, we don't say it to criticize the church or Christians, but, you know, we can get out of step with things as Christians, I think people go overboard and they, they're always trying to reinvent the church or criticize the church or say Christians are totally blowing it. But it is true that we can be out of touch, out of step. And we want, we want more than anything to reach people with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so uh, pray about it. Think about the people you're going to be around. What activates them? What are they interested in? Uh, you know, when, when I do funerals, it doesn't always work out, but when I do a funeral, I try and think a little bit about who the person was who died and what they did for a living, because a lot of the people there are going to be from that background, and if I can tie that in somehow to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it becomes very meaningful to people. Uh, I... I Remember one funeral I did where there were a lot of loan agents there. There were mortgage reps, and they frequently have to go out and qualify people for the loan and tell them they're either qualified to purchase a house or not qualified. And we talked about how there are qualifications to get into heaven. And if you were to sit before Jesus, these are the qualifications. And it was, it was meaningful to them. I did a funeral recently where I somehow tied in the trucking song Phantom 309. To the gospel, and don't ask me how that worked out, but uh, it was great, you know. And so we're always trying to reach people where they're at. Sometimes Christians want people to become like them, and then they'll talk to them. No, you need to be all things to all men and reach them where they're at. Now, verse eleven. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. A certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and stood and said to me, "Brother Saul, receive your sight." And at that same hour, I looked up at him. Then he said, "The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know His will and see the just one and hear the voice of His mouth." For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Very Jewish, he presented Ananias not as a Christian, but as a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews in Damascus. Ananias referred to God as the God of our fathers, putting him in a Jewish context. Jesus was the just one, which is a reference to the promised Messiah in the Jewish scriptures. Paul wasn't sugarcoating anything or holding back, just using terms that were meaningful to his listeners. Hey, there are more than 700 names or titles of Jesus Christ. Any one of them is appropriate. And so let's use those titles and those images of the Lord that are most meaningful. And so verse 16, and now why are you waiting? What are you waiting for, Paul? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Paul's Jewish listeners would have understood him to be saying he had been converted on the road to Damascus and should now give a public testimony of the washing away of his sins by faith in Jesus Christ by being water baptized. That's the sense of those words. He believed 
And so he should go out and give a public testimony of Jesus having forgiven his sins by being water baptized. Sadly, there are those who take this verse out of context and they try to prove to you that you must be baptized to be saved. What do we say? That is not how the original words read. Baptism is something Paul did because he had been saved, not in order to become saved. Second, it's clear that Paul was saved before he was baptized. In the book of Galatians, Paul says that the gospel was presented to him by Jesus and not by Ananias. Verse 10 of chapter 22 indicates Paul had already submitted to Jesus by faith before being baptized. Third, when Ananias prayed for Paul to receive his sight, he also said to him, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul thus received the Holy Spirit and must have been saved before he was water baptized. Fourth, of the three times Luke recounted Paul's conversion, only this one time does he mention Ananias' statement about the washing away of sins. And fifth, a whole bunch of other verses explain that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from any works, and that would include baptism. There's even a statement by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3, 21, to the effect that baptism is not the washing away of your sins. It is the response of a good conscience towards God, which Peter means to say, you're already saved and you're just giving an example of it. You're just giving a representation of it. And so we reject any idea that you must be baptized in order to be fully or truly saved. Now, Paul is simply recounting his testimony. He's on his way to kill Christians when the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, appeared to him. He was saved and his life radically transformed. For our application, I would note the phrase in verse 15, for you will be his witnesses to all men. All men meant Jews and Gentiles, but as we'll see in a moment, especially Gentiles. If you go back and read the conversion experience in chapter 9, you'll see that the Lord already had determined Paul's work. Jesus told Ananias that Paul was a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. In other words, God already had a path in front of Paul. He already had a way that he was going to go. He had already chosen him to be an apostle, especially to the Gentiles. God has already determined your work for him. Paul brings all of this together when he writes in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, we should walk in them. And so Paul, looking at his own conversion and path and then applying it to the Christian life in general, he says, when we become Christians, we're new create, uh, creatures in Christ, we're the workmanship of God, and we find that God has in front of us good works that he has determined we should discover, and we should go in the direction that God has set for us and do the good works God has determined for us. Now, God can and will use things from our background, and as we serve the Lord and gain in experience, God wants to use our experience, and as we serve the Lord, we can gain in education, and we should. But it is a mistake to try to predict the works which God has prepared beforehand by looking at our education and experience. 
In most cases, we see that the Bible characters had little or no qualifications. They often resisted the call of God because they believed themselves unqualified for the task. Whether it's Moses or Gideon or these other guys from the Old Testament, almost universally they say, you've got the wrong man. Jeremiah thought he was too young. Uh, Others thought they were too old. They, They resisted this call. They didn't feel themselves qualified. But this morning we're getting an opposite exhortation, and it's just as necessary. Sometimes we think we are qualified to do a certain work for the Lord, and we need to find out that God doesn't need our qualifications. He doesn't need our education. He doesn't need our experience. In fact, often they get in the way of His being glorified through us. The classic example of this is the perceived need in the Christian community at large for a seminary education. In most denominations, it is absolutely required in order to qualify you to be a minister. Now, I've had to struggle with this for years, as many, uh, not just Calvary Chapel pastors, but many pastors have for centuries, and, and they still do. You know, we live in a very conservative area, and I'm thankful for that, and it was even more conservative when we first came here in 1985. It's kind of scary, you know, like any place else, we're slipping as far as, you know, uh, being conservative and holding the line. But anyway, uh, very conservative, and, and when I would meet other ministers or other people in other churches, and they'd say, oh, Calvary Chapel, a lot of them had never heard of Calvary Chapel, And almost invariably, the first question out of their mouth was, where did you go to seminary? Which tells us a great deal about what people think. They want to know where you went to seminary. In other words, they're saying what, they might as well say, what qualifies you to be in the ministry and to be pastoring this church? And I would say, well, I went to seminary. (laughs) Pardon me, I didn't catch that. And then I'd try and gulp a drink or something. Finally, I'd have to fess up to the fact that I I felt called by God and trained up in the church that I had attended and and didn't go to seminary anywhere. And that would be the end, uh, the effective end of most conversations I had with people, both ministers and Christians, because no one could understand how uh, anybody could be in the ministry without the requisite education, uh, because that's just not done. Uh, I have a decision, or not a decision, but I've determined that the sad truth is that many men and women who are qualified by their education were never called by God. They have no gifting and no empowering. They have what I call an empapering because they have a, a paper that says they're qualified but they, they, and they seem bona fide to their church, but they've really never been called into the ministry. I'm not against education. I'm for it. I love experience. But I think a person should be called and gifted and working in the ministry and then get the education that they lack and then gain the experience that they need. Uh, And, you know, not everybody who goes to seminary is missing the call of God, but a great deal of people who are graduating from Christian seminaries are wanting to go into a ministry feeling they need these qualifications and God is saying to them, depart from here. Get out of here and get to the place where I have called you to minister, where I will gift you and where I will bless you. 
and empower you. And so it's, very, it's a very serious thing. D.L. Moody was a shoe salesman in Boston when he was saved in April of 1855. In May of that same year, the next month, he applied for membership in his own church and he was denied membership. The pastor who led Moody to Christ said of him, and I quote, I can truly say, and in saying it, I magnify the infinite grace of God as bestowed upon him, that I have seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than was his when he came into my Sunday school class. And I think that the committee of the Mount Vernon Church seldom met an applicant for membership more unlikely to ever become a Christian of clear, decided views of the gospel, still less to fill any extended sphere of public usefulness. In other words, they were saying that even though he claimed to be a Christian, he seemed like the stupidest guy on the planet, and we didn't see how he could ever be a member of our church, let alone even somebody used by God. Moody, as many of you know, went on to be the greatest evangelist of the 19th century. God gifted him. God empowered him. God used Moody. Then Moody established a school. It's a good school, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Now we require that folks go to that school before God can use them. And so it's, a, it's, it's backwards. We've got it backwards. Qualifications can get in the way. They can keep us from magnifying the infinite grace of God bestowed upon his servants. There's that ad campaign on television, I think it's for Holiday Inn, where the guy is giving medical advice and, and, and di- or different kind of high-level professional advice, and they say, are you a doctor? And he goes, no, I stayed at Holiday Inn last night. And, and it, it works because you don't want a doctor who stayed at the Holiday Inn. You want a doctor who stayed at USC uh, for seven or eight years and, and was properly trained and has some experience. And, and, and all in that whole realm, whether, whatever professional realm outside the church, you want people who know what they're doing. And, and, and you know, doctors, lawyers, um, butchers, bakers, Indian chiefs, you know, whatever. And, and you want people who know what they're doing. But you need to leave that in the parking lot when you come into the church or when you're thinking about the body of Christ. Because God says... I don't really need your qualifications, and in many cases, your qualifications are going to get in my way because you're trying to qualify yourself for something I haven't called you to do. And there are many times we are like Paul the Apostle, nothing wrong with our desire, but God would say to us, you are not the person. I don't need your qualifications. I'm sending you over here where you probably are not qualified. Why? Because as this pastor said, it magnifies the infinite grace of God as bestowed upon you. More than anything else, really, when you serve the Lord, you want somebody to look at you and say, how is that possible? How is that possible? How could God use you in this area to minister to people. Not that you have to be a knucklehead like I am or like completely off your rocker. I mean, you can be a regular normal person, but still God wants to, people want to be able to look and say, wow, I, you an ordinary person? What training do you have? What experience do you have? You say, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Wow, that's amazing to me and, and it magnifies God. Now, 
let God direct your work for him also, verses 17 through 23. It's no criticism that Paul was zealous to see the Jerusalem Jews saved. But his qualifications didn't qualify him. God had something else in mind. Verse 17, now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. Commentators think this happened about three years after Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Don't stumble over the word trance. His hearers would have understood him to mean that the Lord appeared to him in a vision. And verse 18, I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then Jesus said to me, depart, I am sending you far from here to the Gentiles. Paul thought he was the best man for the job and he made his case and we would see it as a strong case. We would have thought just as Paul thought. In fact, we do think this. Every time a famous athlete, a famous actor, a famous uh, celebrity of any kind gets saved, professes faith in Jesus Christ, we think, wow, think of the effect he's going to have on that group of people, Uh, a group of people that, you know, really needs to hear the gospel, Hollywood or the sports community or whatever it is. And many times, if you go back and follow the career of those who genuinely accept Christ in those high-level situations, they do go on to have a profound ministry, but it is not with the people that we thought it was going to be with because God says, I don't really need actors to reach actors. I have all kinds of other ways of reaching them. I'm going to use you over here so people say, what's that all about? Why didn't you use him over here? Because God wants to magnify his infinite grace and glory. Uh, And so we would have thought like Paul thought, that you're the perfect guy, but the Lord knew the Jerusalem Jews would not receive Paul's testimony. In verse 22, they listened to him until this word, Gentile, and they raised their voices and said, ah, which is a translation of, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Well, you know they were doing some screaming, too. I mean, you don't just say, they didn't just say, away with such a fellow. I mean, they were yelling and screaming. Then as they cried, well, if they were British, they might have, but but they were Jewish. (laughs) Then as they cried, then they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air. These, you know, they must have had a lot of clothes in these days, you know. (laughs) The Jews are always tearing up their clothes. Maybe, and this is before Velcro. I could see it if you had Velcro, you know. You tear away your clothes and then, you know, put them back together and they're throwing dust and, I mean, it's just crazy. They're acting like wild beasts about to stampede. Jews hated Gentiles. Any thought God might save them was sickening to them. They went wild. Every time we see this Jew-Gentile hostility in the scriptures, it's a good checkpoint for us to look at our own biases and prejudices, even as Christians, they have no place really in our lives. I sadly admit uh, that for 21, 22 years growing up before I was a Christian, I grew up in a family that was extremely prejudiced. Uh, and, and, you know, I joke with you about Italian pride and you know, we uh, hopefully poke fun at myself as much as I do you. But the, the sad truth is we were extremely 
hatefully prejudiced in my family. And there, it, 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 it wasn't about Italian versus everybody else. It was about us versus everybody else. We were the only normal people <laughs> on the face of the planet. And, and people of different skin color, different ethnicities, different education. It didn't matter if you were in any way different than us, i.e. you weren't us. There was something wrong with you, something severely wrong with you and you were an object of scorn. And, and even as a Christian, I find that I still have to struggle with attitudes and ideas that are deeply ingrained in the flesh. And so don't think, you know, that just because you're a Christian, you're not biased and prejudiced. And this is just a general exhortation. Take this to heart if it applies to you. There are times when I'm out in the world, I hear Christians talking about things that are really right on the border of being perceived as really prejudiced, really biased, almost hateful. And I think of Paul the Apostle and all he ever saw, whether it was a Jew or a Gentile of any persuasion, was a person that needed to know Jesus Christ. People who wanted to beat him to death, tear him limb from limb. People who had the power to execute him when he gets uh, on his trip to Rome. And Paul said, hey, I don't care about any of that because when we get to heaven, we're gonna find out you know, that, that we're all one race, the human race anyway. All I care about is your soul. Are you going to heaven or not? And so let's just guard ourselves in this area. The mob fulfilled everything Jesus had told Paul decades earlier. Three years after he was converted, Paul wants to reach the Jerusalem Jews. Jesus says that's not going to happen. They won't receive it. Some decades later, Paul is back in Jerusalem thinking he's going to reach these Jews on the stairs, and they fulfill this prophecy in a sad way by rejecting him and his testimony, powerful though it was. I mean, no one had a testimony like Paul. Ha! <laughs> I, I was not only just like you, I was better than you. You didn't go to J Damascus. You didn't, you know, drag pr Christians into prison. You weren't killing Christians, but I was until I met Jesus Christ, our Messiah, who we crucified but who's risen from the dead. He transformed my life. Now I love you. I love Gentiles. I love everybody. And they said, we're just going to kill you. How about that? We hated Jesus, we hate you. Honestly, if we were in charge of first century evangelism, we would have sent a Gentile to reach the Gentiles. You always hear about how uniquely qualified Paul was for his ministry, as if God couldn't have done it without Paul. And I'm, I get kind of the feeling here today that, you know, how uniquely qualified is an Orthodox Jew really to go out among the Gentiles and reach the Gentiles? Sure, he was familiar with the Gentile world, having grown up in, uh, you know, as a, a more liberal Jew in one sense, but he says here of himself, no, I was never a liberal Jew. I was always a strict Orthodox Jew at the feet of Gamaliel, more zealous than you. And so when you think about it, sure, God could use his Roman citizenship. He could use his life experience and all that. But Paul is the least likely guy that you're going to send out among the Gentiles. And so we need to even quit thinking about that. Every time you hear uh, you know, a, myself or another pastor say, Paul was uniquely qualified, just smirk. 
Because I, I don't think God is into that. God doesn't want you to look at Paul and think, look at the perfect guy for this. He wants you to look at Paul and see this, who would have ever thought that this guy could reach the Gentile world for Jesus Christ. A short, ugly Jewish guy. No, he was, by all accounts. He was a short, uh, he, and he said of himself he couldn't really speak well. We think of Paul as this intellectual giant you know, we think of him, you know, as, as a great orator. And he said, that's not true. I could barely speak Well, people don't like to look at me. And as I've told you before, he had something wrong with his eyes. Probably he had ophthalmalia, which was a disease that would cause your eyes to weep and pus. And so Paul would get up in the pulpit and, and people would say, where's Paul? Where's this great apostle that we've heard of? Paul was the kind of guy that you'd listen to him, and if you weren't really, you know, walking with the Lord, you'd think that was dead because he would just kind of talk and, and you know, and, but if you were walking with the Lord, it was just rich, take it into your soul food. And, and so it's very interesting. God wants intensely to put his grace on display. In the Old Testament, he said, why did I pick Israel? Because they were the least of all the people. And, and the other nations of the world, the Gentile nations, by definition, because they weren't Jews, all the other nations of the world, they would look at Israel and say, what's up with God? And they would conclude that God is gracious and merciful and long-suffering and glorious and they would want to know him. And, and the same thing is true of the church. The, the, people are to look at the church and think, what's up with God? Who are these weird people that all come together from all walks of life, claim to be forgiven of their sins, and, and all of this? And, and in our individual mis- ministries, it's the same way. God forbid, really, that anybody would think that it's you that it's your talent, that it's your ability, that it's your skill. Uh, God doesn't need that. He needs for us to be willing to discover the work he's put in front of us. He'll direct us into it. Let's discover those good works by walking with the Lord with a new mindset. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these things. To me, they're an encouragement. I hope they are to others. Lord, that you can and will use anyone who is available to you. It's also a good exhortation, Lord, to not trust in our qualifications as if we are adding anything to your empowering, as if we are adding anything to your anointing. We do want to grow in our experience in areas of ministry. We want to add to our education in those areas as well, but not... Lord, in any way to take away from your gifting and your empowering and your enabling. We don't want to be an empapered people. We want to be an empowered people. And so we pray, Lord, that in the simplicity of your love for us, we would continue to walk. Out in the world, sure, Lord, we want to have qualifications and education and experience. We want to be with the best people. But in the church... We're equal, Lord. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female. We're just your servants. 
and may we stand in awe at the ways you gift us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand together. I know you're anxious to get to the cafe. Burrito Sunday. Wednesday morning, the men will be together. Uh, 6.30 to 7.15, we're going through Romans 6, 7, and 8. Wednesday night, our Ignite service. If you haven't been to one of those, come on out and uh, experience what we're doing on Wednesday night uh, in worship and through the word. May God bless you. May God keep you. Have a good time fellowshipping one with another. Amen. Amen.